All right, please read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, it is proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lauren. Good morning, everyone. I'm Sully. I'm one of the pastors here at HTC. And if you're wondering what on earth we just read, you're probably not alone. That's all right. Let me, let me say right up front what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about gender and the glory of God. Before I get into all that, I want to say a couple of introductory comments. Uh, first off, uh, it is our, um, our habit here at HTC that if uh, you are new or visiting with us, we'd love to get to know you. And so if uh, you're able to stop by the welcome table, which is the table right in the back after the service, a few of us would love to meet you and shake your hand, um, connect with you. If you're new or visiting with us and there's something that maybe is, uh, you don't understand about our service or have questions, I know myself, Pastor John, we'd love to find time and meet with you and, and answer those questions. Uh, the second comment I want to make here at the outset is that uh, this summer we've been giving Pastor John a couple of weeks out of the pulpit, which has allowed him to do some reading preparation for the, for the fall. Um, but it's also allowed us to have some other preachers come and, and preach. So last week we had our pastoral resident, Ben Nussbaum, preach a great sermon. Um, if you weren't able to listen or hear that last week, I encourage you to go to our YouTube page and find that. I'm sure it'll be edifying for you. Today, though, we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're turning to the, the 11th chapter. And if you're wondering here at HGC why it is that we just seem to, like, march our way through books of the Bible, there, there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that it, it keeps us from skipping over the hard passages. It keeps us from skipping over passages kind of like the one we just read a few moments ago. Another reason why we walk our way through different books of the Bible is because we believe that all of God's word is God-breathed and that it is good for us and that God's word speaks to us, that God's word speaks to our longings, the questions we have, the issues that we face today. Corinthian church, you know, there's hundreds of years that separate us, and yet the same issue around gender persists today. 
I mean, think of all the different questions that we could list right now about issues related to gender. You know, is gender something that can, we can choose? Can it change? What, how, do we, how do we love someone who maybe changes their gender or wants to go by a different pronoun? How do, we, how do we think about gender as it relates to sexuality? Or how do we raise kids in a gender-confused world? Today, my goal isn't to add to the confusion or to discourage anyone this morning. No, today I, I think that we come to this topic of gender and we probably all maybe feel like the culture views or perceives Christianity as a little bit backwards, a little bit restrictive. Well, I want to argue today that when we come to the Word of God and we look at what it says about gender, it's not something that we need to be confused about or ashamed about, but rather we might be surprised at how positive the Bible speaks about gender and its goodness. So if I was going to summarize the message today, here, here's the, the big sentence for us today. I believe that gender is a window through which we can see the glory of God. Taking seriously what the Bible says about gender, it's not because we're, you know, we don't want to change. It's not because we're some crazy rule followers. We take seriously the word of God as it relates to gender because it's an issue of embracing and seeing the goodness and glory of God. So as we get started, I want to ask the Lord for his help. So would you pause with me for a moment and pray? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning believing that you have something to say to us today. In our city and in our culture, Lord, we, we know that there's a lot of confusion around gender. And so we just come before you humbly and ask that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Father, though the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, your word remains forever. And yet, in contrast, Lord, to your word, which is everlasting and always true, Father, I come before you and I admit that I am fallible and that I have questions. I'm still learning. So, Lord, in your mercy, might you work through my weakness today. Father, in this moment, might you teach and might your word be heard clearly. Father, I pray this for the good of the church and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When it comes to studying difficult passages that we're going to preach on on Sundays, it's a, maybe a, a usual thing that John and I, Pastor John, will maybe talk about it uh, during the week. This past week, John unhelpfully came to my office door this week and said, Sully, you should call your title, title it, head, uh, head, sorry, Hairstyles and Head Coverings. I was like, well, I love the alliteration about that. That's not quite the main idea that I want to come across today in the text. No, as I said, I want to tell you that, that today our passage really helps us understand that gender is this window through which we can see the glory of God. Well, at the risk of maybe extending or overreaching on the imagery of a window, we all know that a window is only helpful if we can see through it, if it's clean. We see the, we see the people up, you know, way up uh, on the side of buildings cleaning windows, and it's so that we can see through them. In our culture today, uh, understanding gender, there's a lot of confusion around it. The window is quite blurry. To see the connection between gender and the glory of God, well, it's a little foggy. We're not really sure how they connect. So today I want to offer you three proactive things we can do to keep the window clean. This week, as I was working my way through the passage, I was really thinking a lot about the youth in our congregation, some of which are here with us today. A couple weeks ago, about a week and a half, I was here in this space with our youth group, and they were meeting and playing games, learning together, and I was just thinking this week about all of the different messages that they receive about gender from school, from social media. And I, 
just believe that God's word has an alternative, a, a better message uh, about gender than what we receive from our culture today. I want us to think about how we can help them see and embrace gender as a way in which we can see and enjoy God. So whether you're trying to raise kids in the city or whether you're trying to make sense of just all the different pronouns that there are out there nowadays, I want to offer you an alternative way of understanding and embracing gender. I'm going to organize my thoughts, as I said, around three imperatives, three applications for us today. Three things for us to do in order to understand God's good design for gender. I'm going to be referencing back to the Bible a number of times, so I encourage you to keep it open in front of you, and we'll have the verses on the screen behind me. But our passage opens today with a word of encouragement. Take a look at verse 2. It says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. We've been calling this sermon series Church on Fire because this church had a lot of issues going on, a lot of things that needed correcting. And so this word, this little verse of encouragement, it's kind of as a sliver of, of encouragement in a, an ocean of, of correction in the letter of 1 Corinthians. When he refers to or encourages them and says, look, you've been, you've been maintaining the traditions. That word traditions, it's not just a family tradition that's carried on through generations over generations. No, when Paul uses the word traditions, he actually means something very specific. He's referring to the apostolic teachings, the teachings of Jesus being handed down from one uh, generation to another. And so he commends them. He says, well done for maintaining the teachings of Jesus. When it comes to talking about gender, I think we all come to the conversation with a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, and probably a little bit of weariness. And so I just want to start, as Paul starts, with a word of encouragement to you, that this is not something that should discourage us or confuse us, but rather keep holding on to the teachings of Jesus. Keep going, keep pressing on. As we turn to uh, chapter 11, verse 2 kind of serves as a bit of a turning point in the whole letter. Uh, up to this point, we've been kind of talking about all sorts of issues going on in the church. But now as we go into chapter 11 and chapter 12 and 13 and on, he really is talking about issues related to when the church gathers for worship. So he's going to talk about issues about what you wear for worship. He's going to talk about the role of men and women. He's going to talk about how to take communion rightly. He's going to talk about the appropriate uses of spiritual gifts. So the next couple of, uh, of sermons that you're going to hear are going to relate to issues pertaining to when we gather to worship together. And here, at the outset, kind of at the pinnacle, right before we go into this list of all these corrections, things that needed to get fixed in the church, Paul has this simple word in verse 2 of, of encouragement, reminding them of his affection and desire to encourage this young church. Well, today our first issue that he wants to address related to when the church was gathering to worship was about whether men and women should cover their heads when they pray and prophesy. You see, it was commonly believed that when men covered their heads, they were trying to emulate the wealthy pagan priests and how they prayed and how they prophesied. And another way of, of understanding this is that it was understood that women who covered their heads, it was a sign of their uh, marital status, that it was a sign of respect and love for their husband. Well, if anyone came into worship today with a hat on, if I had my Cubs cap on today, none of you would think that I was trying to emulate some pagan, uh, you know, elite priest. And if a woman came in today with a head covering, none of us would assume, oh, that's because she's married. So since head coverings don't mean the same thing today in our culture, we're just going to skip ahead in our Bible um, as a sarcasm. We're going to keep going. We're going to press in <laughs> in this particular issue. 
even though it would be easier to maybe just move on and not actually take very much time to really think deeply about this, I, I do want us to think deeply. It's actually in looking at a very particular circumstance, a very, very granular issue, looking at this circumstances will actually help us to see how one church tried to embody biblical truth, truth that transcends any culture or time. So as we get into this, I want us to look at verses three through five. And as I read these verses, try to notice the word that's repeated a lot. This is verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of, uh, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as her head were shaven. You probably noticed the repeated word here, it's the word head. So to really understand, to try to grab, uh, to understand what Paul is saying and teaching here, we need to understand what he, what he, how he's using this word head. He starts off in verse three, outlining three relationships. First, he says that, uh, uh, that the, the, the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. And third, he says that the head of Christ is God. And there's two really main ways for us to interpret the word head. The first way of interpreting it is to think of it as just um, the beginning of something. Think of it as uh, the head of a river, where it started, the origin of it. Where did it come from? A second way, though, of interpreting this and understanding the word head is something more to do with authority and submission. And there's actually a few reasons why we should understand Paul's use of the word here, the word head, to mean more than just where did it come from? Where is the origin? But having to do something with authority. When it comes to interpreting difficult passages in the Bible, a really important principle is that we don't try to throw our, what we want, uh, our understanding onto the text or try to make it fit to what we want it to say. We actually want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so when it comes to trying to decipher what is, how is he using this word head in this passage, we can actually look to other places where Paul uses this word. And when we look at other places where Paul uses the word head, it's pretty clearly, it's almost universally that, that Paul uses it in reference to Christ, who is king, who is ruling and reigning, who is the head of all creation. And so it would make sense by the wider context, the wider biblical context, that this is the way that he's using the word here. But also the immediate context helps us to see this as well. You see, when Paul um, says to the men that they should not cover their heads, it's because they're going to dishonor their head. He's not referring to their, their physical head, that somehow it's, it's a dishonor to their head. No, he's referring to the, that it's a dishonor to the one who made him, the one who has authority over him, Christ. And sim similarly is the situation with the, with the women, who, who, the women who are uncovering their heads, well, it was a way of actually dishonoring and rejecting this marriage relationship, their husband. It's as if someone were to come into our worship service who's married and just not wanting to wear a wedding ring and takes off their wedding ring, doesn't really want a public display of, of being in relationship or this marriage relationship. It would, in some ways, be hurtful. And so, really, what we can see into this passage as we understand what, what Paul is teaching, what he's instructing them to men and women about head coverings, is that when you gather to worship all together, don't do anything unnecessary that, that would actually bring dishonor or shame or hurt your head, those who have headship. Well, I know that the word headship, this language, can quickly get confusing, it can get quickly even offensive, especially as it relates to the headship of a husband in a marriage relationship. I wanna be really clear this morning, and I wanna ask a question very bluntly. Does Christianity, 
demean women? Does it, uh, does it actually harm women? Is it actually hurtful? And I want to be overwhelmingly clear that in Scripture, there is absolutely no justification, nor grounds, nor examples of anything that should ever be thought of as demeaning or belittling women. In Scripture, we actually see that, that Scripture speaks very highly of both men and women in equality. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But, but here, I just want to make this point that Scripture, while it holds this equality of both men and women, it also speaks of, of men and women being created with distinction. Distinction does not equate to diminishment in Scripture. And so this brings me to my first big application. I told you I want three applications for you. The first one is that in a gender-confused world, let's define the distinction between men and women. To say it another way, let's be clear about what we mean and don't mean by differences between men and women. In our culture today, the effort to, toward bringing about equality between men and women has resulted in kind of the diminishing of any differences, trying to get rid of any differences between men and women. And like I said, we're going we're gonna to spend a lot more time talking about how Scripture speaks of equality in a moment. But for now, I just want you to see that what makes the biblical perspective on gender so great, so beautiful and good, is that it allows for differences, but also maintains equality. The cultural narrative today says we can't affirm any differences between men and women because it would lead to inequality. Scripture says otherwise. He uses the, in the passage we're looking at this morning, he refers to this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And he uses this illustration, this example, to help us understand how there can be both distinction and equality. We all know that God the Father and God the Son are co-equal. They're both divine, fully divine. They're equal to one another. And yet we also know that Jesus, the Son of God, out of his own free will, not being coerced, freely submitted to the will of the Father. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ stepped down and took, humbled himself by taking on the form of a human and humbled himself even to the point of death. But God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and has highly exalted him. God the Father and God the Son, they are equal and divine, and yet they are distinct. The submission of Christ to the Father's headship does not diminish him, but rather is the very reason he is exalted, highly exalted. Kathy Keller, who has written a book on some of this with her husband, comments that Christ's submission says more about his greatness than it does his weakness. Some language I find helpful that we use here at Holy Trinity Church is that we believe that both men and women were created with a way in which they can have these distinct glories, ways in which we have unique ways of emulating the glory of God. Women are called to embody the goodness and strength of Christ who, though equal with the Father, submitted to the Father. In a way that we hear women are called to show the beautiful uh, submission of, of humbling themselves, just like Christ humbled himself to show the love that he had for us. In a similar way, husbands are called to be the head of their wife. And this does not mean to domineer or to, to be self-serving. Rather, Paul is very explicit about the way in which they are to emulate the glory of God. They are to lay down their life as Christ did. Philippians 5 actually is one of those places where, where Paul uses this headship language. And he says that Christ is the head of the church. And just like Christ sacrificed his life to serve and love the church, so it is a husband is meant to love his wife by laying down his life, to lift her up, to serve her. And so while... Wives are called to 
emulate the, the, the beauty of submission, men are called, husbands are called to show the sacrificial servant leadership of Christ. So here we're not, when we define distinctions, we're not talking about what toys kids play with. We're not talking about different appearances. We're talking about something much greater than that. Unique ways in which each of us have been called to reflect and embody the glory of God. Coming back to the context of the passage, where this is an issue about worship. He says, when you gather to worship, we want the full glory of God to be on display. And so he says, don't do anything to, to harm or hurt those, the headship, to dishonor the headship, because it is part of God's good design. It reveals the fullness of his glory. Again, Kathy Keller kind of comments about how throughout culture, this, the way in which this has been embodied is going to look different from culture to culture, but the principle remains the same. She writes, we must find ways to honor and express our gender roles, but the Bible allows for freedom in the particulars while still upholding the obligatory nature of the principle. The principle of distinct roles or distinct glory is not, it's not culturally bound to just the Corinthian circumstances. Rather, in verses 8 and 9 in our passage, he grounds this, we're going to look at this in a moment, grounds it in the creation narrative, that this was true well before the Corinthians uh, ever were around, and it remains true for us today. So, when, like I said, when we come to defining distinction, let's be clear about it. Let's, let's describe it in terms that are good and glorifying to God. When scripture gives us this command to, to clearly make known the distinctions, what we're doing is making known the glory of God. It's not something that is evil or wrong. It's part of God's good design. This, though, leads me to the second point of application that I want to give us today. In our gender-confused world, Christians, yes, should work towards helping to define the distinction between men and women, but let's also be defenders of equality. Looking at the passage with me, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Paul wants to make clear that if you're reading this passage, that you have no grounds to conclude that men and women are unequal. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, women, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Again, when we think about Christianity, we probably sometimes think, we jump to conclusions that it's regressive or restrictive. But in a lot of ways, this passage reflects just how countercultural Christians' view of gender was. Let me just point out a few of those things that we see in this passage. First off, in a culture that at one point thought of women were less than men, that they were second class, in this passage, Paul doesn't say at all that all women need to to somehow submit to all men. That is not the case at all. He is very much so confining that to this marriage relationship, this special mysterious relationship of a husband and a wife that can both serve and love one another and display the full glory of God. Another thing that is countercultural in this passage is that in this culture, women were not allowed to participate in the worship service. And yet, here, within the Christian community, it says that when women were part of the praying and prophesying, the testifying of God's goodness in the service. And he's, he doesn't say not to do that. It's very clearly that Paul's understanding of the role of men and women was actually quite countercultural to that of the day. And his countercultural understanding of the roles of men and women, the gender, it's not just constrained to his own view. It's actually, we find it all over the Bible, particularly in the ministry of Jesus who came to earth and 
He had taught and giving illustrations of both men and women. He had women who were disciples. He spoke to the woman at the well. He touched and healed the woman with chronic bleeding. He, in a way, elevated women in a radical way. So it's no wonder then that when we look at church history, we see that women played an incredible role in the expansion of Christianity around the world. Rodney Stark is this historian who talks about the, how Christianity spread all over the world, and he talks about how women found within Christianity a message that affirmed their dignity, that, that taught their equality, that gave them a place, that called them to the work of displaying the glory of God. And so they played an, an, an immense role. They didn't do this because, out of coercion or force to do so, but they found within Christianity something joyful, something that spoke to their value. Christianity has always been a force for equality in the world, and it must continue to be so today. I want you to notice in verses 11 and 12 how Paul grounds his teaching on equality. He says that men and women are in, interdependent. He, he says that in the creation story, uh, Adam, it was from Adam that woman came, but now women uh, bear children, and so men come from women, and so we're somehow interdependent in this design is part of God's goodness. This takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. And he says that when we think back to the creation story, we're told that men and women were created in the image of God. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us this story that Adam existed and amongst all of creation, there, could, there was no companion fitting for him. God said it was not good for him to be alone. And so Adam was put into a deep sleep and from his side a rib he was given, and out of that, God created Eve. I love that from the very beginning, the role of a husband was to actually give up his own flesh and bone, his own blood for the good of his wife, Eve. And so we have Adam and Eve from the very beginning created as equal in the image of God. And as we find in the verse 12, right at the end there, there's this simple reminder that all things are from God. I believe the Bible offers the best justification for equality. It's not based on capability. It's not based on intellect or physical attributes. It's based on the very fact that our creator from the very beginning gave each of us value and dignity. I think in our culture today, the, the narrative, as we've already said, is, is to actually get rid of any differences, that the basis for equality is that there's no difference between us. But I think that there's even a better, a better justification and it's what we see in the creation story. It's ironic that we live in a culture that prides itself on valuing equality, and yet in our country we have discriminated against people based on their color of their skin, against their gender, against socioeconomic status. We, we claim to be a culture that values men and women in the workplace, and yet uh, somehow women are often paid less for the same work that a man does. Our culture says we value equality, and yet men and women in the workplace, we want them there, but we have horrible maternity leave policies. And yet, if a woman decides to stay home and, and do the important work of raising kids and keeping a home, that that, that work seems to be undervalued and, and not really seen as, as worthy in our culture. I won't, don't claim this morning to understand all the ways that women have been mistreated or undervalued in our culture, but I know enough to understand that the work of seeking equality, it's not done yet. And if there's anybody who should be motivated enough, determined enough to press on in the work of equality, it has to be Christians. 
because we have the best justification for equality. In a world confused about gender, let's be staunch defenders of equality. Let's teach our young girls that they are lovely and worthy and strong. Let's teach our young boys to love and respect women. Let's build a society where no one ever thinks that they're second class. Let's build a society where there is justice when a man mistreats or harms a woman. Coming back to our question today, how can gender be a window to, into seeing the glory of God? Well, I've already said that if we define the distinctions between men and women, we can see the multifaceted glory of God. Men and women have distinct glories, and together we can glimpse the multidimensional love and glory of God. We see Christ's sacrificial leadership as well as Christ's joyful submission. Secondly, when we defend equality, what we are driven back to is the creation story, and we get to see the glory of God in his creation. But when we become really taking seriously this call for equality, we are also driven back to the cross, where Christ died and rose again, so that whether you are a man or a woman, whether you're Jew or Gentile, that before God, you might be seen as equal and that you might be accepted. I want to bring us to the final application, the final point of application for us today. In our gender-confused world, we don't just need clarity about what makes men and women different. We don't just need help understanding how to think about equality. What we need today, we need a better rationale for delighting in who God has made us. I don't want our young boys and girls over in Kid City simply to, to grow up understanding that there's a difference between men and women or just growing up with an understanding that there's equality for all people, but I want them to grow up knowing that they can delight in how God has made them. In the last few verses of our passage, Paul continues to build his argument for why it makes sense for women to cover their heads in the Corinthian church. And here he just brings up another observation. It's a simple observation that moves towards his point. This is verse 14 and 15. He says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, hang in there with me for a second. The logic here flows that a woman that has, na it's natural in the Corinthian culture that if she has long hair, it was good, it was her glory. And thus, by analogy, it was right and good for a woman to have a head covering when she was in church. This is not an airtight argument. This is not his main argument. He's just simply making this observation about how a cultural phenomenon points towards and affirms his instruction. And I want to pause before we begin to write off Paul as simply just affirming gender stereotypes. I want us to see something within what he says here. What Paul acknowledges in these verses is that in every culture, there's a traits of men and women that are respected, that we view as their glory that's beautiful and good. And that's going to change from culture to culture. But here he says that the long hair that was seen as her glory in this culture, it was given to her. It was a gift given to her. It was something that was bestowed upon her from the one who created her in her mother's womb. He made you the way you are, every aspect of yourself. God created you. Even the aspects about yourself that you don't like, God made them. And he made you good. I grew up watching Mr. Rogers on PBS. I don't know if you did. If you don't know who Mr. Rogers was, he was a, a man who had a TV show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. 
he began, uh, he, he just had these simple messages, used simple sentences, and helped young children to really wrestle with hard issues like racism and war and suffering. Few know that Mr. Rogers was actually an ordained pastor, um, and his ministry was this show that he put on. And in one particular episode that's really quite powerful, he sits down with a, a young boy in a wheelchair. He goes, he actually sits on the steps of his, his house, and the, the, the kid comes forward. He obviously has a lot of different medical uh, issues, and he has a simple conversation with him. And at the end of the conversation, Mr. Rogers asks, can I sing a song? And the little young boy says, sure. Picture me in a Mr. Rogers sweater for a moment. He sings, it's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your toys, they're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new, I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself, it's you, it's you I like. Such a simple message, but who wouldn't want someone to sing that song to us? Mr. Rogers was accused of cultivating a, a generation of snowflakes. He was accused that all of us millennials who grew up thinking we're so special, but sure, that message can be twisted. But I think in our culture today, man, there is just a huge need right now for us to be able to show what a healthy, what it looks like to have a healthy understanding of ourselves, to delight in how God has made us. In our culture today, we are thinking that gender can be chosen or changed. And because of that narrative that gender can be chosen or changed, it doesn't view gender as a gift. But it is. And it's God who made us. And we should delight in how he has made us. I believe God is glorified when we delight in his creation, when we delight in a beautiful sunset, when we delight in something beautiful in nature, it gives glory to God. And so it is when we delight in how God has made us, it glorifies God. Being satisfied, being thankful, being delighted by who we are, well, that brings honor and glory to the one who created you. So today, as I wrap up, there are three applications for you is one, let's, let's define the distinction between men and women. Let's, let's defend equality and let's delight in who God has made us. But I want to wrap up by just acknowledging that we live in a culture that is probably not going to change in the sense that this way of understanding gender is probably going to be the minority view. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult at moments. And it's going to be... Uh, challenging. It's going to take winsomeness, and it's going to take courage. It's going to take fortitude for us to see clearly through our way, to see the connection between gender and God's glory. But I think that what our culture, our, our gender-confused culture needs more than just an understanding of the distinction between men and women, more than a justification for equality, more, for, more than just a reason to delight in ourselves, it's this. We need to hear a message of a God who, in spite of our confusion, delights in us. You see, Jesus Christ, he dignified humanity by stepping down and putting on the form of a man. And he lived a life that he died on the cross and rose again. Not so that you and I might one day be set free from these bodies of ours, but that we might be resurrected to resurrected bodies. 
That we are not called and saved on the cross from these bodies that God made, but rather we are saved so that we can see them as good. And have hope that when there is confusion, when there is things about ourselves we don't like, that one day it'll be made right. And that we will be able to see and rejoice in how God has made us. You see, Christ, he died on the cross in order to save a people, a new people, a, making a new community that he calls the church. And throughout scripture, he dignifies women by referring to his church as his bride. In the book of Revelation, when we come to that final picture of Christ being united to the people of God, it is in terms of Christ as a groom and the church as the bride. And God has shown his love for us in that he died on the cross for his bride, you and I. And so today, as we come to this idea of gender being a window to seeing the glory of God, really, I just want you to see that who God has made you, well, you can delight in who God has made you because God first delighted in you. So yes, today as we wrap up in this gender-confused world, let's, let's define the distinction, let's defend equality, let's delight in who God has made us, but together let us be reminded that we have a God who delights in us. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving Father, we come before you because there is many questions we have issues that still are unclear in our mind and we need your wisdom. But Father, I pray today that as we press on and seek to walk faithfully and adhere to your word, that Lord, you would help us to understand the distinction between men and women, the good, the good design that you have made. Help us, Lord, to be a people who embrace equality and most of all, Lord, may we delight in how you've made us. But Father, may we look to Christ, the one who sustains us, who has shown us your love. And when things get hard, when we get weary, and when we get confused, may we just come back to the simple message that you have told us that it's you that I like. And you can say that to us because of what Christ has done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.